Hey friends, and welcome to Bold Mercies with Heather Johnson. I am so glad that you have decided to join us, to come and listen to some faith-building stories. God's bold mercies in our lives help us live out our stories with boldness. Many people today are making the comparison to our moment in time in relation to the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King. Since the vast majority of us did not even live through the civil rights movement, I invited Nina Martin, my 90-year-old grandmother who was a part of the civil rights movement in the 60s, to speak with us today. You are going to get to hear her heart's journey from what was considered the norm in America of segregation until she was a part, a vital part, in the civil rights movement in Annapolis, Maryland. And although she was an agent of change, my grandma's work obviously did not change the nation, but she did change the trajectory of her children and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren. And as I look across the line of her grandchildren and see how they are living across barriers and breaking down walls of injustice and using their lives for voices of peacemaking, I see the impact of her life for the generations. So this is the thing. If you are overwhelmed by racial inequality in America and you are thinking there's no way that one person, me, can make a difference, don't underestimate the multiplying impact you will have by being an anti-racist parent in your home. Also, due to coronavirus, I recorded this episode outside so I could socially, physically distance from my grandma. So enjoy the birds, the wind, the airplanes flying by, and sometimes the grandkids playing in the background. I am sitting about six feet away from her, so my voice will be quieter. So just enjoy the more natural sound of today's episode. I'm so glad that you are here. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, My agency was the YWCA, and I was in the part of the YWCA that was interested in political things and the community, Annapolis community. So by the time 
that event happened, I was in leadership on the leadership committee. And so we had a group called Dialogue. I formed a group called Dialogue, which was getting in touch with the black leaders, some of the black leaders in Annapolis and some of the white. And we met every week. And we not only that, we went, to, we purposed to go to each other's churches and each other's homes and to meet regularly. We met at least once a week. So we became what's called the Dialogue Group. I was very happy with that situation because it was better than just being in a marching around making claims for change. Well, you really got to know the people and what they needed. So that was a very, a very positive experience for me. And some of the people that we got to know became leaders of the movement. So I love what you had told the grandkids today that love is an action. Tell us a little bit about your heart for that. Well, what proves that you don't, you don't judge people's value by their color and you don't let it get in the way of you getting to know each other. And it's a very enriching experience. It will change your life and it will humble you. And it was a very enriching experience. And being in each other's homes, it wipes away a lot of delusions you have about people's value. Yeah, that's so important. So what did you do with your son when you thought, this needs to be a change? You sent your son. Oh, yes. I lived in an upper middle class, bordering on a wealthy neighborhood in some cases. And everybody's ch children on my road went to private school. So, no, no, no. John went to, was the first boy to integrate parole elementary school, which was all black. It was awkward, I think, at first. I did not choose to send my children to private schools. You didn't choose to send them out? No. I just thought there was no... You live life where you are. I cannot say that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as you love yourself and then judge that black is inferior. Mm -hmm. So I didn't think there was a choice. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, I'd like to get John in on this because we have a lot of discussions about it because he said he got beat up every day. <laughs> But he said it was so good for him in the end, that yeah. it shaped who he was in the end. It did. It absolutely did. And your and my and my daughter Gail, she became tremendously adamant on the subject, to the point that I always thought, Gail, slow down. Maybe you're going too fast, <laughs> because she practically, if you were black, it would be her first choice in friendship. And she and we lived in an affluent neighborhood. And um, her best friends were black, which I would, in theory, really liked. But I thought, wait a minute, maybe we should think this and rethink this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> it became not exactly tricky, but it, it called you to put your lease on the line. When my social place was the Annapolis Yacht Club, was very, very far from being integrated. And I think probably it's not much further along now. Did you lose any friends over it? By that time, I think I migrated toward making new friends, and I didn't exactly totally lose them, but we spent less time together. Right, right, because your, your heart had changed a little bit. Right. You had different desires. Well, a, a lot of people, you know, like it in theory, but they don't really want to work at their beliefs. Hmm. In theory, they'd say they weren't prejudiced, but in actuality... They don't make, make many moves in their lifestyle. So the big slogan now is Black Lives Matter. Yeah. What do you think about that slogan? Well, obviously. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 
and it's a good slogan, but we shouldn't need slogans. Yeah. I mean, that should be, you wake up in the morning, and you, of, of course, lives matter to God. Even purple, if they came in purple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, what you said, we shouldn't need slogans, but man, this world is broken and sinful, isn't it? Oh, yeah. There's a southern prejudice that is very strong. My mm -hmm. best friend is from Virginia. And it just isn't in her DNA mm. to think of blacks as equal. Because mm. it actually takes a lot of work to work against racism because it's so ingrained in our culture. And my husband went along with it. He didn't like being a change agent, but he liked me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so if you had to tell the next generation one thing that they should learn. Well, you have to begin with finally coming to the conclusion is life is not about you. It's not about your enjoyment or meeting all your needs, but it's about how do I invest my life to make a difference? That's my bottom line. And it's, it's just great fun. It's not only a great idea, it's really fun. I also got to talk to my grandma about what it was like for her journey from a growing up going to church, being a church attendee to becoming a, a vibrant believer. I love this because she really comes alive right here when she's talking about the impact of the word in her life. Come on, listen. There's very many ways of starting, but I think that I would say that a big part of my life, I would I would claim that life just happens to you and that you have good fortune, you have bad fortune, and you have difficult things that come along and you have some things that are just pure joy. But as I reflect back, I would think how life happens has a lot to do with choices. At a certain point in my life, even though I was raised in a church, in a religious atmosphere, but I, as, as I got older, I recognized sometime before 20 or anywhere in college age, I realized that it isn't just a religious experience. It has to do with how you invest your life. It's much more than just going to church and learning some hymns, which I like to do, but it is about how you invest your life. So we do have the freedom to make choices, choices of how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you make decisions about friends. It doesn't just happen to you. And sometimes the choices are against what you want. So how do you feel like you best invested your time? I best invested my time was in family life. And oftentimes raising a family is not all fun and games. It can be very difficult. And the most rewarding experiences could be choices that deal with children or relationships that are not pleasing or not enhancing your life, but that you choose to invest. And at the time, it didn't seem pleasant, but in the long run, it's those investments that have really enriched your life more than anything. My first child was Gail. And a wonderful person that has made much of her life, but she wasn't exactly like Mary Sunshine. <laughs> yes, Mother, I'll do it. Oh, of course, Mother. She had a mind of her own, and I thought, what's that all about? And she asked questions and 
find things that she wanted to do that were perhaps different than mine. But it probably was the most enriching experience of one of them of my life. Mm. So, so you talked about being, uh, you know, making good investments with your time, <laughs> with money, and with your friendships. Mm-hmm. And you've had some very dear friendships because you were widowed fairly young. Right. And you've had some very dear friendships. Talk about a little bit about the meaning of those friendships to you. Well, I'll say a word about choices and decisions. God didn't just create the world and people in them. He designed us for a relationship. And what I discovered from just being an organizational thing to a personal thing, I realized that he, he called us into community. And that was a decision I had to make. And so I sought out friends and gathered them together to share. I think it's a shared experience, and we, we studied and grew together. Church was not just something you went to and sang hymns, as I said before, but it, it's a place where you gather together people of like mind in order to invest ourselves in a way that is going to be used by God. It's easy to say in having a church, but actually what the important thing is to find a a community of people that experience the same decisions that you have and the same way of investing their time so you can work together with them. And that has always been, it's been an important guideline. So I think also in community you grow also alongside studying the word with mm-hmm. other women or with other couples. Mm-hmm. And personally, in your own life, the words had a huge impact. Can right. you talk a little bit about the impact? Well, I would guess that many people would relate to this. Growing up in a, in a family that was church-centered, the Bible was just something that was just there and that you did. And I'm sure, although I haven't spent the time to mark exactly how that happened, but when I realized that it was much more than that, and even though, you know, I could do all the, learn the Ten Commandments and do all the little Bible stories that, you know, that, that were pleasant to learn and hear and knew they had good rules for me, that God was really serious and he was calling me to a, a life-changing commitment. Mm-hmm. And I know there was a period of time through other inspiring Christians that have really gone on to make a huge difference from hearing them. And I'd go and hear how they were investing their lives. And it, it, t- it led me to a, a, different, a different purpose of my life and to see that God had called me to something greater. And the Bible became not just a book of cute stories, but just a, a rule that God intended with his help, which we definitely needed, to live by. That caused me to reinvest myself, and that was through going to spend time with people that had made that discovery, who were vital Christians, where the Word came alive and just put a new vitality in my, with the meetings role in Washington, and in the bad weather, I couldn't get there. So I started a Bible study in my home and invited people so that I could continue this very vital time of uh, having a be, living a Bible-centered life, and it made all the difference in my life. That happened around 40, maybe 45. My husband was a, a wonderful, loving husband. He pretty much went to church obediently because he, he wasn't raised in the church, but he went because 
he wanted to be where I was, and we, we did it together. But it wasn't until a time in his life when the, the word became alive for him also through, through the testimony of other people. And we both began to re, reline our lives. And that was a time when we had started having a family. My first daughter was Gail. And she kind of grew up when this new awakening was happening, which, as you can picture yourself as a child, where everything's just comfortable, go to Sunday school, behave yourself, and all's right, and suddenly this mother comes alive, <laughs> uh, wired for, and, and and she's wondering, what happened? Too much pressure here. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> Let's slow down. <laughs> Sunday school's it. Draw the line. You're right. caught talking about more. Wow. <laughs> so that was a real changing time of our life. And she was like, I think most people, a lot of people, when they encounter the truth of the vitality and the demands of Jesus Christ, think that maybe that's a little bit much. Maybe just going to Sunday school is one thing, but you start making other demands, that's too much. Too much. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that Gail would say about this, but at first reaction, I think she wasn't ready. So she had to make her own decisions to, with this new mother and father. And, and she did, and then she went far beyond me and particularly began interested in interracial, in interracial relationships, which theoretically I thought was good, but that's a whole nother way of life. It shouldn't be, but it is. What? And it was. It was then. Yeah. yeah. That's around the time when Martin Luther King was killed. Mm -hmm. So that led us in another direction. And she started to be involved with a group of people in the black community. And that led us in the whole interracial ministry. Hey, me again. I just think it's so awesome how I think my grandma just coined a new word. She, Her mind, I think, was combining these two words, interracial and generational. And what she says is, and you're going to hear it a couple times, is interracial. And I thought about that word, and I just thought, man, how like sadly appropriate is that word? Here is a woman who marched and was part of a movement in the 60s really who did more than marching, who acted out her love in the 1960s, but we're still dealing with this today in 2020. And what we have are interracial, see I'm saying it too, <laughs> interracial inequalities and injustices that have become generational problems. Wow. The last thing I got to talk to my grandma about were some of her favorite memories. And these are super cute because she gets to talk about her late husband, Jack, and some history of Annapolis. So come on, join us in the last part of our interview today. What are some of the very best memories that come right to your mind? Well, because we were talking about the interracial thing, I being a, I was in leadership at the Y, and I, my WCA, and I could see, and and that was about the time when racial issues were really coming to the forefront. I could see that it was pretty white dominated. So I started a movement 
to improve that and started something called Dialogue, mm -hmm. where we purposed to invite leaders in the black community to meet together. And not just to meet together, we went to each other's churches. We went, we went invited each other to homes. What you needed to do, because it doesn't happen naturally, mostly we're comfortable with people like, that are like ourselves, not different. So that, that became a real big movement. And my husband was then commander of the Annapolis Shock Club. And this was totally not, I, I never got criticized. Oh, yeah, I, did, I didn't really get criticized. But when I get to know people, I'd hear things like, you really take this seriously, don't you? Mm. You yeah. know, because I think that a lot of people have a general tendency to seek out people that are just like them. Mm -hmm. Very natural. Yeah, very natural. But if you seek out people that are of different color or different religion, uh, religion it takes a step of but making radical changes in your life. Mm -hmm. And everybody isn't for that. My, some of my closest friends were uncomfortable with that. So it brought out another part of life, which, and because, it, and I ha this is just uh, parenthetically, Jesus calls us not to be judgmental. So the important thing is to not judge people because they don't have the same emphasis that you do. Mm -hmm. What other best memories come to your mind? Many of my good memories come from, I met, I may have already said this, but I met my husband Jack because I purposed to meet someone that was sailing, was a sailor. You have not said this yet. <laughs> yeah. I've dated a lot of boys, but when it came, one of the things that's basic to my love is being near and on the water, in particular in sailing. So I, it was, things were not going well in that direction, so I joined the University of Maryland sailing team and purposed to meet. I, th I think that this is another parenthetical thing. Women sit and wait for life to happen to them, but sometime, in order to establish a, a relationship with a man for a woman, you have to plan it and you have to work at it. I just believe that's I like what that. I mean. <laughs> so I joined in order to meet someone that I could spend time with on a dating relationship that had something in common with me. So poor Jack, I just pursued him. And actually, women, you can do it and we're good at it. <laughs> good word, good word. So. I came to know him, and uh, it, it blossomed and was great. And he was, you could, I could substantiate this. He was one of the best sailors that most people knew. We never lost a race. We never had less than first place, second place. We raced intercollegiately, and then we bought a, uh, a small boat penguin, and we worked it up to a 24-foot racing division boat that was designed and built in New England called uh, Fisher's Island One Design. And then we wanted other people to be with us, and we, we were always group people, groupies. So we bought an Allberg 30, mm -hmm. and Jack talked a whole handful, at least 10 or so, into buying one also. So we had a sailing class, and they become our close friends as we raised our, as we raised our children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. So... Those are great memories. They're great memories. And I loved, we did a lot of youth work and uh, in our times at the beach, taking kids and, and youth. We bought a garage and turned it into a beach house. And some of my great memories was 
at the beach house and at the ocean. I liked that. I have memories of you too at the ocean, swimming out beyond the waves in swimming laps back and forth in the ocean right. for literally about two hours. I love every that. afternoon or late morning. Yeah. So thank you, Nanny. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Amen. I love you all. <laughs> Thanks, Nanny. All right. <laughs>